A U.S. senator goes after Wells Fargo for violating customers' privacy. And what the Hillary Clinton email server ruckus says about executives' attitudes towards security. These and other stories coming up in the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro, coming today from the ISMG Fraud and Breach Prevention Summit in Toronto. We start off today's report with the latest news on a story that broke last week. If you recall, federal and state regulators allege Wells Fargo employees subscribed customers to products they didn't request. The practice triggered $185 million in fines. The regulators accuse America's second largest bank of allowing its employees to access customers' personal information to subscribe them to company products such as credit cards. In some instances, employees forge customers' data. Falsely signing up customers generated revenue for the bank as well as commissions for sales representatives. Authorities contend the bank employees opened without customers' knowledge or through misrepresentation an astonishing 2 million ghost deposit and credit card accounts. The bank says it has fired 5,300 employees for such incidents in recent years. Still, calls for a congressional hearing on the matter has gained an influential supporter. The Massachusetts Democrat and consumer financial advocate, Senator Elizabeth Warren, is calling for an immediate congressional investigation, and she wants Wells Fargo's CEO, John Stump, to testify before the Senate Banking Committee. Here's Warner speaking on CNN. This is a staggering fraud for how big it is and also for what it says about Wells Fargo. Look, Wells Fargo's turned around and said, hey, we're firing yeah, all the workers who were doing this, but not the management team. My view on this is one of two things is true. Either they knew, come on, this went on for years and they didn't smell anything in the air about fake accounts and generating all these fees off customers. Either they knew or they didn't know, in which case, how can you run a giant multinational bank? They're supposed to keep track of people's money, safety, security, and not know what more than 5,000 of your employees are doing. If they really didn't know, then that tells me this is a bank that is simply too big to manage. Warner says new regulations are not needed. Instead, she says, Wells Fargo violated current laws and they should be aggressively enforced. Stay tuned. Next up, we take a look at the security of mental health and substance abuse information. Organizations that provide mental health and substance abuse services face special challenges to secure sensitive patient data. Marianne Kolbasak McGee is executive editor of Healthcare Info Security, and she joins me to discuss how providers safeguard or should safeguard extra sensitive patient information. Welcome, Marianne. Hi, Eric. What makes defending mental health and substance abuse information special? The technologies don't really differ too much, but the problem is that when sensitive mental health or substance abuse treatment information is breached, that's highly sensitive information for patients, often resulting in embarrassment, reputational sorts of consequences. And so organizations really need to protect that data even more so. And how have organizations succeeded or not in securing these sensitive records? Well, unfortunately, sensitive mental health and substance abuse data is at risk like any other health information is. And the sorts of breaches that we've been seeing in other areas of 
health care are impacting mental health providers as well, including hack attacks as well as information getting leaked through mistake by employees at these organizations. For example, a recent breach that was disclosed by an organization called Man Alive Incorporated, which provides mental health and substance abuse treatment to patients in the Baltimore area, had recently been a target of a hacker attack uh, involving ransomware and Ultimately, sensitive patient information was downloaded out of the organization, and there's one report that this data is showing up on the dark web for sale. The information that was leaked are for patients that had sought mental health or substance abuse sorts of services from this organization. How are regulators getting providers to secure mental health and substance abuse information as compared with other types of health records? There are certain special regulations that do apply to substance abuse and mental health data that is held by healthcare entities that participate in certain federally funded programs. That's a very small slice of providers. Overall, all data, including mental health and substance abuse data, is or under the umbrella of HIPAA. And so the Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights gets involved with those breaches. There has been at least one case where sensitive information related to HIV AIDS patients was left on a subway train in Boston, which resulted in the disclosure of sensitive information about 192 patients, but it ended up with a $1 million fine for the Mm. hospital that lost that information. Stuff can be costly. Yes, it can. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Eric. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. I communicated about classified material on a wholly separate system. I took it very seriously. That's Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton speaking of how she handled classified information as Secretary of State at a candidate's forum last week. The brouhaha over Clinton's use of personal email servers seems to have taken a back seat, at least for now, with the focus on her health. Both issues, her health and emails, zero in on the issue of trust. What's missing from much of the email coverage is the failure of leaders to understand the dynamics of email security. ISMG's Jeremy Kirk explains. House Democrats released a fascinating email sent by former Secretary of State Colin Powell to Hillary Clinton in early 2009. The email was released to strengthen Clinton's case that other State Department officials have used private email and devices for public work. In computer security and intelligence circles, though, it's far more interesting for another reason. In the friendly email, Powell describes how he managed his personal devices and email. Clinton has defended the use of a personal email server for public business, in part by saying Powell told her to. The email reveals just how out of touch Powell was with how spies in the internet age work and how that naivety might have been unwittingly passed on to Clinton. Powell tells Clinton that the State Department's Bureau of Diplomatic Security blocked him from taking his mobile device into secure zones. He writes, quote, When I asked why not, they gave me all kinds of nonsense about how they gave out signals and could possibly be read by spies, etc. We even opened one up for them to try to explain to me why it was more dangerous than, say, a remote control for one of the many TVs in the suite, or something embedded in my shoe heel. They never satisfied me, and NSA-CIA wouldn't back off, end quote. 
It's somewhat excusable that Clinton doesn't know much about email's vulnerabilities. Not much of the public at large does. But Powell is a former U.S. Army four-star general, and he should have a passing familiarity with signals intelligence, which is a rich source of information for the U.S. The leaks from former NSA contractor Edward Snowden revealed just how fruitful signals intelligence is for the Five Eyes nations, whose geographic positions all but guarantee wireless communications around the world can be intercepted. Make no mistake, other countries with well-formed intelligence agencies are intercepting wireless signals as well. That's why the seeming ignorance around email and signal security amongst high-ranking U.S. officials is so baffling. It's perhaps the largest source of U.S. intelligence these days. The aim of Powell and Clinton in using private devices was to keep their correspondence off State Department servers, preventing their eventual release as part of the public's right to access to government business. That avoidance actually posed grave risk to national security. If the Clinton email brouhaha has done anything, hopefully it has thwarted the use of private email and devices for good. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Finally, the ISMG Fraud and Data Breach Summit in Toronto begins today, Tuesday, September 13th. One of the topics to be covered at the summit is the security of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. Presenting that session is the co-founder of Blockchain University, Robert Schwenker. He discusses the challenge of regulating cryptocurrencies with Bank Info Security's Tracy Kitten. Regulation may happen um, in certain jurisdictions, but it's a complex issue because there's no central authority in, in the Bitcoin ecosystem, per se. And that's the advantage, I think, in some ways, right? But also the disadvantage. It's a conundrum. To find out more about the Toronto and other ISMG fraud and security summits, go to events.ismgcorp.com. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro, reporting from the ISMG Fraud and Breach Prevention Summit in Toronto. Catch you next time.